Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you yet another guest speaker talk from the bi-monthly meetings of the Whitechapel Society, 1888. And what you are about to hear is the December 2018 talk by John Reese, entitled A Century Apart, Profiles of Jack the Ripper. John Reese has published several articles for Ripperologist magazine and has given talks at numerous conferences and is a regular and long-time contributor to our RipperCast roundtable discussions. So without further ado, let's venture into the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London to hear Tony Power introducing John Reese. Welcome, everybody, to the Whitechapel Society December 2018 meeting. And it's great to see, once again, a great turnout. You're all very welcome, and we hope you enjoy tonight. And as always, I'm going to say welcome to the people listening in to us from the RipperCast podcast. It is the Christmas meeting, and obviously the halls have been decked with boughs of holly. The Christmas tree is twinkling in the corner. And our very own president, Mark Galloway, has got a sprig of mistletoe hanging over his head in hopeful anticipation, which is why you've got nobody sitting next to you, Mark, if I can just say. <laughs> um, before I start introduce tonight's speaker, there is something I wanted to share with you. There's some bit of information that I found out this week, uh, which really blew me away. Um, now, you may know this gentleman here on my right-hand side, Steve Ratty, top man, uh, a sound man who is indeed a sound man the nicest man in ripperology. But we were having a conversation last week, Steve, and it was absolutely amazing. You were talking about the RipperCast podcast and the fact that this is recorded and it's uploaded onto the internet. And he told me it's downloaded 10,000 times. I know, isn't that amazing? 10,000 times this podcast is downloaded. And last year at the Christmas meeting, it was downloaded 30,000 times. So it just goes to show you the interest. And for those of you that are listening into the podcast, thank you so much for downloading it. You're really welcome. And we hope you enjoy what you hear tonight. And if you'd like to find out more about our society, the website is whitechapelsociety.com. Uh, you will find on there some books that we sell and other information, but also uh, information about our next speaker. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask, email us and we'll ask the questions for you. Now, for those of you that are listening in through the Rippercast podcast, our guest speaker tonight, John Reese, is no stranger. Um, he's been on Rippercast many times. He's also contributed frequently to the Ripperologist uh, magazine. Um, and I've been very lucky to hear Mr. Reese twice, uh, two fascinating talks. One was the Jack the Rip conference, where you did something on the uh, eyewitness statements, and you set us up beautifully. Uh, for those of you that are there, you know what I'm going to say. We were walking into the uh, venue, and there was a couple having a blazing row outside it. And as we came in, and John started the presentation, he asked us, who were they? Can you remember who what they looked like? And from what I remember, John, no Nobody actually did. I think we all got it wrong. The witnesses said he was a, a short Asian bloke. So, uh. 
which just goes to show how accurate eyewitness testimony <laughs> can be. Uh, and there was another talk that you uh, that you that you did, which was the crime symposium, which is actually here in uh, the Chamberlain Hotel, and it was about the nutshell studies. Now, many of you again here would have been there for that, but it was all about a perfect miniature reproduction of real crime scenes, and they were used to actually train the police force and detectives as well. Brilliant stuff, and I have no doubt that tonight's talk is going to be just as fascinating. What would the subject of tonight's talk is about criminal profiling, which I've always found interesting. How accurate is it? When did it start? And of course, the question that you all want to know, is there one done on Jack the Ripper? I'm pretty sure there has been. And to tell us all about that, ladies and gentlemen, John Rees. Thank you for that uh, brilliant intro, Tony, that the check's in the post. And uh, good evening. It's a pleasure to be at the Whitechapel Society on this cold, dark, is it still rainy? I think it's rainy, December evening. And uh, if you are listening in on uh, the Rippercast podcast, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is with you. Criminal profiling is a term that has entered our popular vernacular and dominates crime fiction and, of course, real-life criminal cases. Examples include the Hannibal book series and their film and TV adaptations, popular television dramas such as Criminal Minds, but also true crime cases where it has helped to guide investigations such as in America, the BTK and Green River Killer cases. Though it is important to note uh, these men were not captured or convicted by actual profiling. Um, it just guided the investigations. And uh, it is also used in the UK slightly more controversially, um, particularly in the Rachel Nakel murder case where there was uh, quite a lot of negative publicity over a honey trap operation that a profiler designed. Today, I'm going to attempt to review the very first use of profiling, which is, of course, that by Dr. Thomas Bond in The Whitechapel Murders. And uh, we're going to compare and contrast it to a profile made a century later by John Douglas of the FBI. While doing so, I hope to slightly demystify the art of profiling and also take a critical look at it. And uh, in case you're not aware, this is part of a research book I'm currently working on entitled The Complete History of Criminal Profiling, which is coming soon-ish from uh, Mango Books, uh, hopefully next year sometime, um, Adam hopes. But uh, <laughs> as such, this talk is a work in progress, so I'm going to apologize in advance for any inaccuracies or inconsistencies, especially as this is now going in the permanent Rippercast archive. So uh, yeah, any mistakes are my own, and I will correct them for the actual book. And if you, there's anything inaccurate, please tell me. Now, when I first started writing this talk, I was a lot more critical of the FBI style of profiling. But um, I had a meet-up in a pub with Mr. John Malcolm, who was, of course, the speaker at your last meeting, um, over a few pints, as conversations with John Malcolm often are. And um, I also read his latest book. And he got me thinking a bit more about the FBI profiling and kind of softened me a bit. So I then had to look again and rewrite about half of this talk. So in the end, I should warn you, my opinion itself is still a work in progress, and that it will probably change frequently during the progress of this talk and numerous more times before I actually publish the book. So first we need to ask, what is criminal profiling? So the Oxford Dictionary of Psychology defines it as the analysis of behavior and circumstances associated with serious crimes in an effort to identify the probable characteristics of the perpetrator. 
Now, I don't want to go into the sordid details of the Ripper victims and the horrific acts their killer inflicted upon them, uh, but I am going to do a slight rundown of the crimes for anyone who is not actually fully aware of the, the names and dates. But the focus is going to be on the profile that Dr. Thomas Bond produced following the murder of Mary Kelly in November 1888. Uh, for anyone who's not well-versed in the Whitechapel murders, they are the term used collectively to describe a series of 11 killings in London's East End focused around the Whitechapel area between April 1888 and February 1891. Of these five murders in 1888, my iPad has gone to sleep, um, generally agreed to have been committed by the same hand, those of this killer which history has given the sinister moniker Jack the Ripper. And these are, of course, the murder of Mary Ann Nichols in Bucks Row, 31st of August, Annie Chapman in the backyard of 20 Hanbury Street on the 8th of September, the killings of Elizabeth Stride in Dutfield's Yard, Burner Street, and Catherine Eddowes in Mitre Square in the City of London, both on the 30th of September, which we know is a double event, and Mary Kelly in 13 Millers Court off Dorset Street on the 9th of November. All five women had their throats cut and suffered horrific mutilations, the exception being Elizabeth Stride, where the killer is generally agreed to have been disturbed and had to kill a second victim the same night to satiate his desires. Of course, other people disagree with that, but we're not going into that today. Um, some people, of course, include the earlier murder of Martha Tavern and George Yard buildings on 7th of August, and the later murders of Alice Mackenzie on 17th of July 1889 in Castle Alley, and Francis Coles on the 13th of February 1891 in Swallow Gardens. But Bond's profile was on the five canonical victims, so that's who we shall focus on. But as an interesting aside, Bond actually believed Alice McKenzie was a Ripper victim, as reportedly did Frederick Abeline, the man in charge of the on-the-ground police investigation in 1888, according to a newspaper interview. So um, whether that's the case, we don't actually know. But Bond was overruled by Robert Anderson, Assistant Commissioner Crime of the Met Police. Bond had also been asked to view the body of Rose Milet in December 1888, but he discounted her as a murder victim, along with Anderson, but this led to a farcical episode where numerous doctors were being sent back and forth to the mortuary to view the body to try and counter the original physician's opinion that he was a murder. Anderson believed she had accidentally hung herself on the stiff collar of her dress, which sounds slightly ridiculous, but, um, but it did lead to an official rebuke for Anderson Bond by the coroner, Wynne Baxter. So if you're not familiar with that... Um, little episode. It is a fascinating read. But I am digressing and going off the topic. So let's go back to the profile of Jack the Ripper. I say profile because even though Bond does not use the term anywhere in his report to Robert Anderson, which is dated November 10th, to anyone who has read the criminal profile produced by the FBI or others, it is undoubtedly the same kind of report and is often cited as being the earliest known example of one. So on October 25th, Robert Anderson wrote to Dr. Thomas Bond, the experienced and respected police surgeon for A Division Westminster, to ask for his opinion on the matter. Included were copies of the inquest evidence for the murders of Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. Anderson had also given Bond special dispensation to view any future crime scene to express his opinion, and Bond would of course perform an in-situ post-mortem on Mary Kelly's remains. So let's look briefly at who Thomas Bond actually was. So he was a highly experienced police surgeon, a lecturer on forensic medicine at the medical school attached to the Westminster Hospital, and he was often called upon to be an expert witness in police prosecutions. He was also an expert on venereal diseases, having written papers on the diagnosis and treatment of primary syphilis, gonorrheal rheumatitis, and he also wrote for The Lancet concerning the Contagious Diseases Act. 
Um, I think the best uh, way to sum up Bond's career is to simply read his obituary in The Lancet. So he committed suicide on June the 2nd, 1902, after a painful illness. And published on the 15th of June, his obituary read, Dr. Thomas Bond, MBBS, London, FRCS, England. Consulting surgeon to Westminster Hospital, surgeon to the A Division Metropolitan Police. Mr. Thomas Bond, whose tragic death on June the 6th was briefly announced in our columns last week, was born at Durston Lodge, Somerset, on October 7th, 1841. He was therefore in his 60th year at the time of his death. His father was a well-known sporting farmer who kept for some years a pack of harriers, and his son inherited to the full his father's love of the West Country and outdoor pursuits. Thomas Bond was educated at King Edward VI Grammar School at Taunton, and would probably have followed in his father's footsteps had it not been for one of those unexpected circumstances which so often change the entire course of a man's life. In 1856, he went to Southampton to stay with his maternal uncle, Dr. Edwin Hearn. The day after his arrival, a railway accident occurred at Bishopstoke Station, and the youth accompanied his uncle to the scene of the disaster and rendered valuable assistance in treating the injured passengers. This proved to be the turning point in his career, and thenceforth he set to work to prepare himself for the medical profession. He laid a good foundation by being apprenticed to his uncle, Dr. Hearn, and it was at this period of life that he doubtless acquired much of the skill he afterwards evinced in the management of his practice. In 1860, he passed the matriculation examination of the university, and the following year, he entered the Medical School of King's College. After obtaining the diploma of MR... Sorry. After obtaining the diploma of MRCS in 1864, he was appointed house surgeon at King's College Hospital, and in 1865 he passed the MB examination of the London University. When the Austro-Prussian War broke out, he received an appointment as surgeon in the Prussian military service, and at the conclusion of the war he spent some time at various continental hospitals. In the autumn of 1866, Mr. Bond returned to England and soon after passed the examination for the fellowship at the Royal College of Surgeons and the Bachelor of Surgery of the University of London. At the latter, he obtained the gold medal in surgery. In 1867, he started practice in London. His first public appointment, and one which he held to the day of his death, was that of surgeon to the A Division of the Metropolitan Police. In 1873, he commenced his long and intimate connection with the Westminster Hospital by being appointed assistant surgeon. His disinterested action in allowing Mr. McNamara McNamara to be placed over his head as surgeon resulted in his being left in charge of the outpatient department for over 20 years. And as he was thus debarred from the opportunity of gaining a purely surgical practice, he drifted into a high-class general practice. His long residence in Westminster brought him into contact, both professionally and otherwise, with many distinguished men. But in whatever rank of life his patients were, they all received the same cheerful attendance. And as the writer has often had the opportunity of observing, his patients were devoted to their doctor. As might have been expected after 20 years spent, uh, Mr. Bond did not take the same position on being appointed full surgeon as if he had been had charge of wards earlier in life. This he was the first to recognise, and with the strong common sense which was so marked a feature of his character, he gladly availed himself of the assistance of his junior colleagues in cases of exceptional difficulty. In 1899, he resigned the post of surgeon and was appointed consulting surgeon. He was also surgeon to the Westminster Training School for Nurses. In the medical school attached to the Westminster Hospital, Mr. Bond read a valuable service as lecturer of forensic medicine, and the wealth of material he had at his disposal made him an ideal lecturer on this subject. The post he retained... Um the post he retained up to two years ago. While on the subject of forensic medicine, it will suffice to mention some of the leading 
cases in which Mr. Bond's services were retained for the Crown to indicate his position as a medical jurist. Among these cases were those of Dr. Baidley, the Wainwright case, the Richmond murder, and the Lafroy and Lamson cases. Mr. Bond was an admirable witness, cool and collected, and not to be intimidated by the severest cross-examination. It might be said he was too dogmatic, but it was part of his nature to see one side of the case, and having expressed an opinion, he was not to be shaken. In addition to his, all his other work, he was also much in demand in railway cases, and at the time of his death, he was consulting surgeon at the Great Eastern Railway and surgeon at the Great Western Railway. Mr. Bond was not a voluminous writer, but what he wrote was very much to the point. He contributed the article on railway injuries and health, health dictionary of surgery. He also wrote papers on the diagnosis and treatment of primary syphilis, on gonorrheal rheumatism, and on accidents and emergencies in the hunting field. He had very decided views on the prevention of venereal affections and contributed papers to Lancet on the Contagious Diseases Act. These facts will serve to indicate, in part, the varied range of Mr. Bond's professional work, um, but another side of his busy life must not be neglected, and that was his devotion to field sports. So I think that's all the relevant uh, information there. It does go on for another page about stag hounds, um, but those are, I think, the relevant facts to Bond and the Ripper case. So Bond submitted his report to Anderson on November the 10th, where he examines the medical evidence and his opinion that the same killer was responsible for the crimes. I won't focus the entirety of the report, but instead why I feel the most relevant sections. So, section seven. The mutilations in each case, except in the Burner Street one, were all of the same character and showed clearly that in all murders, the object was mutilation. Point eight. In each case, the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or any person accustomed to cut up dead animals. Ten, the murderer must have been a man of physical strength and of great coolness and daring. There is no evidence he had an accomplice. He must, in my opinion, be a man subject to periodical attacks of homicidal and erotic mania. The character of mutilations indicate that the man may be in a condition sexually, but may be called satiricis. It is, of course, possible that the homicidal impulse may have been developed from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, or the religious mania may have been the original disease, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. The murderer in external appearance is quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, or he could hardly have escaped notice in the streets if the blood in his hands or clothes were visible. And part 11, assuming the murderer to be a person, uh, such a person as I have just described, he would probably be solitary and eccentric in his habits. Also, he is most likely to be a man of a regular occupation, with some small income or pension. He is possibly living among respectable persons who have some knowledge of his character and habits, and who may have grounds for suspicion that he is not quite right in his mind at times. Such persons would probably be unwilling to communicate suspicions to the police for fear of trouble and notoriety, whereas if there were a prospect of reward, it might overcome their scruples. What we notice, I think, is the bond focused on sex's motivation, notably what he terms satiricis. This condition, which would now be termed hypersexuality, is defined as a psychological condition of men characterized by uncontrollable sexual desire and an ability, inability to have lasting sexual relationships. And as a society, we are more colloquially familiar with the female form, nymphomania.
As Bond would have known from the autopsy reports, there was no evidence of rape or indeed no form of sexual intercourse, or as Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown delicately phrased it in his autopsy report on Catherine Eddowes, recent connection, which I've always thought personally is a curious fact as all the victims are allegedly working as common prostitutes, we can assume he felt the murderer got his kicks from the act of killing itself. Satiricist as a diagnosis dates back to antiquity, but it was in the Victorian era that the concept of it became fully evolved. It can even be interpreted that this development led to the Victorian concept of morality and policing of sexuality and the famous double standard of the time. So we've all heard, of course, of the Victorian double standard. Victorians saw sex as being a necessary evil, essential for procreation, but detrimental to civilized society. However, they also felt that men had sexual urges that needed gratifying, and if they did not, there would be consequences to the man's health. On the other hand, if a man indulged too much, it would produce the same result. The Victorian man was therefore seen to need to walk a balance between sexual indulgence and restraint. Many works of literature at the time represent this struggle, most notably, of course, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This balance was not, however, about protecting women from sexual violence. It was purely about keeping men civilised and preventing them from being corrupted. This can be seen by attempts to regulate or curb prostitution, such as the Contagious Diseases Act in 1864, which was brought in because of the rate of syphilis in the army. Um, but later, towards the 1880s and 90s, campaigns such as W.T. Steed and the Slander Women Act 1891, there was some indication that more feminist considerations were taking place, but it could be argued these were just reactive or moral panics. Interestingly, Victorians feared if a man developed satiricis, there could be one of two outcomes. Femininity, the man would become homosexual, or he would become savage and animalistic. Today, of course, we are quite familiar with the idea of murder causing sexual gratification, but would this have been the case in 1888? Sigmund Freud had only set up practice in Vienna in 1886 and was yet to publish any case studies. Richard von Kraft Ebbing had published Psychopathia Sexualis in 1886, but it would not be published in English until 1889. At least one other police official, Assistant Commissioner CID Sir Melville McNaughton, described a ripper suspect as being sexually insane though some have felt this to be a metaphor for homosexuality. But if we look at McNaughton's memoirs, Day of My Years, it may convince us otherwise. In the fourth chapter, Laying the Ghost of Jack the Ripper, he lays out his theory for the motivation of the murderer. The man, of course, was a sexual maniac, but such madness takes protean forms, as will be shown later on in other cases. Sexual murder is the most difficult of all for police to bring home to the perpetrators. For motives, there are none, only a lust for blood, and in many cases, a hatred of woman as woman. In a later chapter, Motiveless Murders, he expands this theory. Both of these murders, referring to the Lambeth poisoning and the Camden Town murder, were committed by sexual maniacs, by men who killed for the joy of killing, but their types were wholly different. As I have said before, when writing of the Whitechapel murders, such madness takes protean forms. Very few people, except barristers, doctors and police officers, realise that such a thing as sexual mania exists, and in a murder case similar to the two mentioned above, it is a most difficult task for prosecuting counsel to make a jury fully understand that it supplies and accounts for the complete absence of any other motive for the crime. Students of history, however, are aware that an excessive indulgence in vice leads, in certain cases, to a craving for blood. Nero was probably a sexual maniac. 
Many Eastern potentates in all ages who love to see slaves slaughtered or wild beasts tearing each other to pieces have been similarly affected. The disease is not as rare as many people imagine. As you walk in the London streets, you may, and do, not infrequently jostle against a potential murderer of the so-called Jack the Ripper type. The subject is not a pleasant one, but to those who study the depths of human nature, it is intensely interesting. So there we have first-hand from a criminal investigator that police and other forensic professions in the late Victorian period would be familiar with with satiricis. Though McNaughton doesn't term it thus, it is clear this is what he's referring to. Bond theorizes on but dismisses two other motivations. The first being religious mania, which could simply be a response to the popular press's reaction to the murders, immediately accusing a Jew and invoking an anti-Semitic xenophobia. And perhaps Bond wanted straight off the bat to deny all possibility of this. Or possibly he's suggesting someone is on a mission to clean up the streets, similar to what Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, claims this trial to motivate him, which could perhaps demonize charitable workers in the area. The other suggestion was a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind. What could someone want revenge on a common prostitute for? If we look at the Contagious Diseases Act we mentioned earlier, perhaps therein lies the answer. Could someone have wanted revenge on a prostitute for contracting syphilis from them? Syphilis emerged in Europe in the 1400s and treatment for it had not progressed since the Middle Ages, the favoured being mercury. It was rarely directly fatal, but left untreated could progress to neurosyphilis, which typically occurred in 25 to 40% of individuals 10 to 20 years after infection, and the symptoms of which could include sudden personality changes, loss of mental stability and psychosis. And in 1888, several newspapers published editorials and opinion pieces theorizing revenge on prostitutes for syphilis as being a motive for the murders. Bond also tries to deduce some other characteristics of the murderer. He tries to settle uh, the argument between various medical professionals who had examined the body as to whether the killer may have some degree of medical or anatomical training by coming down firmly in the negative. We can assume he deduces the killer's physical strength and his great coolness and daring simply from the force he used. Um, he used the knife to mutilate his victims and the locations where he committed the crimes. He could have been interrupted any moment in many of them, especially when he said of the Annie Chapman murder, which he committed in the backyard overlooked by windows as it was getting light. Bond um, even ventures to give a very elementary physical description of the criminal. The murderer in external appearances is quite likely to be a quiet, inoffensive looking man, probably middle-aged and neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, or he could hardly have escaped notice in the streets if the blood on his hands or clothes were visible. So how does Bond deduce this? Uh, in my opinion, in all likelihood, he probably thought that the women are far more likely to feel safe to go off with an inoffensive-looking man. Um, a ruffian or an obvious lunatic, um, they wouldn't risk it, uh, so they'd feel sufficiently at ease and the killer could then strike. Uh, going on to further deduce the man's habits in life, based on the assumption of his physical deductions. Assuming the murderer to be such a person as I've described, he would probably be solitary and eccentric in his habits. Also, he's most likely to be a man without a regular occupation, but with some small income or pension. I think that by Bond's logic, he would have to be solitary to account for coming and going at all hours of the night, and to be covered in blood. And the same goes for regular occupation. He's used to keeping irregular hours with no fixed routine. 
The eccentricity, perhaps, uh, would be an external sign of his madness. As surely a man who murders and cuts up women for kicks must have some kind of eccentric behaviour in his everyday life. Now, without knowing who the killer was, we will never know if Bond was correct and his actions made in his profile. Um, and, of course, the deductions I've made from Bond's deductions, they are just guesses as well. So it could be he had other reasons. He doesn't explain them, unfortunately. Um, but without knowing that who the killer was and that knowledge is lost to time, we'll never know if it was accurate at all. But what strikes someone looking at it from a modern perspective is how similar it is to modern profiles produced by organisations such as the FBI. Therefore, may it suffer from the same questions in regard to accuracy and reliability that we'll uh, see they shall hold. But first, we'll take a brief look at uh, the FBI style of profiling. So the Federal Bureau of Investigation was formed in 1908 as the Bureau of Investigation, its name being changed to its current form in 1935. It was formed in response to a need to investigate and fight crime at a federal level, a country-wide response that could cross city and state borders. Its remit has evolved over the years to include organized crime, national security, espionage, and finally violent crime. In the late 1960s, several FBI agents began exploring the idea of using psychology to profile violent offenders, but this was a backroom endeavor, with no official backing nor budget, as FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had a distrust of psychology and what he termed soft sciences. Much of the FBI at the time agreed, believing that BS could stand for behavioral science or bullshit. It was not until Hoover died in 1972, after nearly 48 years as a director, that the culture of the FBI could change and psychology, criminology, and behavioral science could be used to inform investigations. Firstly used in hostage negotiations and then in violent crime investigations themselves. The Earth profiling of the FBI was influenced by consultations with Dr. James Brussel, the psychiatrist who profiled on the Mad Bomber case in 1956. In this case, over a 16-year period, the Mad Bomber terrorized New York, planting 33 explosive devices in theaters, terminals, libraries, offices, and even the subway. 22 of these exploded, injuring 15 people in total. Brussel famously predicted that the Mad Bomber would be wearing a double-breasted suit buttoned up when he was arrested. When police arrived to arrest the perpetrator, George Metzky, who readily confessed to the crime, he was actually in pajamas. But when they instructed him to go get dressed, he returned wearing a double-breasted suit, and it was buttoned. So in 1974, the FBI founds the Behavioral Science Unit. This 10-agent team is in response to a rise in sexual assault and homicide in America. This is also the time when the now familiar term serial killer is coined by Robert Ressler. Two years later, supervisory special agents Ressler and his colleague John Douglas begin to work on a database of serial offenders. They will spend three years traveling the USA interviewing these offenders, at the end of which their database is constructed and FBI profilers begin fieldwork and to consult on active cases. In 1984, the BSU splits into two units. Uh, one responsible for training and the newly formed Behavioral Science Investigative Support Unit takes over field investigations and consultations. A year later, the BSISU becomes known as the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. The FBI also established a database known as the Violent Crime Apprehension Program, where they store the Douglas and Ressler study, as well as information on present crimes, unsolved cases, and various other 
relevant records. So what does all this got to do with Jack the Ripper, I hear you ask? In, uh, finally, in 1988, profiling comes full circle when John Douglas is asked by the Cosgrove Mirror Production Company to prepare a criminal profile of Jack the Ripper for a documentary entitled The Secret Identity of Jack the Ripper for the centenary anniversary of the crimes. And Douglas also appeared as an expert on the programme, and I think Wrestler did as well. Um, hmm? So in his book, uh, The Cases That Haunt Us, Douglas lays out his reasons for agreeing to complete the profile. He felt it might be a useful intellectual exercise in training new agents. He also felt it's difficult to resist matching wits with the most famous killer in history. And he also felt that there'd be no negative consequences to do it other than possible embarrassment on television. Um, normally in a profile, if he gets it wrong, someone would die or get hurt, but there was no risk with this. So before we take a look at the document he produced, let's take a quick look at the FBI method of profiling. It's often described as more art than science, and we'll take a look at this defense later, but it involves six steps, which are listed on this slide. Uh, slide 21, I believe it is, for the uh, anyone on listening on Rippercast, which is as clear as mud, really. What on earth does that actually mean in English? So, in plain English, the first step, profiling inputs, is when the profiler gathers together all information for study, which includes synopsis of crime, details of crime scene, background info on victims, forensic evidence, crime scene photographs, aerial photographs, crime scene sketches, etc. The important thing is they, require, they, they, they specify no suspect information because they don't want their information to be clouded at this stage. They then undertake decision process models, which means they organize and arrange these materials into meaningful patterns. They then undertake a crime assessment, where they reconstruct a sequence of events and the behavior of the victim and the offender. Then is the criminal profiling stage, where they generate a profile of the type of person the offender is and the behavioral organization related to the crime. This will typically include demographic info, physical characteristics, habits, beliefs, and values, pre- and post-offense behavior, and recommendations for investigating, apprehending, and interviewing the suspect. Then is the investigation stage, where they write the report, the investigative suggestions are applied and evaluated any suspects. And then hopefully it's the apprehension stage where they actually catch a suspect. And if a suspect admits guilt, a detailed interview is needed to check the profiling process for validity. So I think the first question is how accurate is profiling? Now, there's quite a lot of evidence in its favor, which comes from the FBI themselves. Uh, based on case studies, which are often criticized for being highly unscientific, anecdotal, and based on failed serial killers in captivity. Other studies, such as Traeger and Brewster, 2001, found police officers who used profiles found them to be a useful tool in guiding the investigation and helping interrogate suspects, but they did not find them useful for actually identifying the suspects. Another study by Coxis, Irwin, Hayes and Nunn in 2000 found those trained in profiling techniques made the most accurate profiles when compared with psychologists, police officers and psychics. 
However, a later study by Cox's, Hayes, and Irwin in 2002 found that chemistry students with no profiling or psychological knowledge or experience also outperformed the sample group of various categories of experienced law enforcement officials. It's been heavily criticised by forensic psychologists, the main argument being it uses vague, common-sense inferences and is similar to statements made by psychics. And uh, Dowden, Bennell and Bloomfield in 2007 concluded that after undertaking a literature review looking at 30 years' worth of research. So let's look at Douglas's 1988 profile, The Ripper. Now, when you see the profile in Ripper books and when people publish theories, they tend to present it as a straightforward checklist. But it's not actually. It's an in-depth document where Douglas does justify his conclusions. And I think as well it should be read in conjunction with his more in-depth analysis in the Jack the Ripper chapter of his book The Cases to Haunt Us, where he actually changes his mind on a few things after having some advice from experts of history. Um, unfortunately, because it is an in-depth analysis where often several possibilities are explored, theorists do tend to cherry-pick the details that suits their suspect and ignore or gloss over the rest. So for the ease of this talk, I've done the exact same thing. I've tried to summarize it as accurately as possible, but I'm going to apologize now if I'm guilty as the same crime I've just accused Ripper theorists of being. So I'll begin by quoting from the introductory statement from the report, and then we'll summarize the main conclusions as best I can. So it's dated, dated July the 6th, 1988. Unsub, which is FBI jargon for unknown subject, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper. Series of Homicides, London, England, 1888. NCAVC Homicide Criminal Investigative Analysis. The following criminal investigative analysis was prepared by Supervisory Special Agent, SSA, John E. Douglas, National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, NCAVC, Program Manager of Criminal Investigative Analysis. They love their acronyms, the FBI do. At the request of Cosgrove Mirror Productions, SSA Douglas was requested to prepare analysis of a 100-year-old unsolved serial murder case that occurred in England. This historical case was known as Jack the Ripper. SSA Douglas was provided basic information relative to each case. However, it is noted that forensic technology and other investigative techniques as we know of today were non-existent a century ago. Medical examiner's reports were incomplete, crime scene photography was used sparingly, and police investigative reports do not reflect the type of thoroughness evidence used today. When a case is submitted for investigative analysis, the reliability and validity of the overall analysis hinged on the thoroughness displayed by the medical examiners, technicians, investigators, etc. Although materials provided were not as complete as cases submitted today by much more sophisticated law enforcement agencies, SSA Douglas filled in the missing pieces of information by making certain probability assumptions. This analysis will address the following areas, victimology or profile of victims, medical examiner's findings, crime and crime scene analysis, uh, offer traits and characteristics, pre and post offense behavioral patterns, investigative and or proactive techniques, and interview interrogation suggestions. Rather than address each homicide separately, SSA Douglas's comments will relate to the entire series of homicides as a whole. So this is the basic points of Douglas's profile. Um, first of all, he identified them as being lust murders. Now, Douglas felt the police in 1888 would not be familiar 
with this type of crime because they were less murders. He explained this is not related to love or sex as a normal functioning human being would understand it, but the target of the attack is the genital area. Sex is an element, but it's more about manipulation, domination, and control. So we've already seen in Bond's report, and also McNaughton, that investigators at the time did see this as a motive. So I think Douglas is straight off the bat. He's uh, got something a bit wrong. But anyway, um, a white male, approximately 28 to 36 years of age, based on apparent pre- and post-crime behavior. But there is no hard and fast rule about this, so age should not be relied on. He will be ordinary-looking, um, but not wearing his everyday clothing. He would want to project to victims he has money. However, in the cases that haunt us, Douglas reconsidered this and said the suspect would not do this as he would not want to stand out from other people in the area. Family, he would have a domineering mother who drank heavily and enjoyed the company of many men. His father would be weak, passive or absent. He would have lacked consistent care and stable adult role models. His profession... He would work alone and be able to experience destructive fantasies. He would keep regular hours for work, a 9 to 5 Monday to Friday job, and Douglas suggested the occupations as being butcher, slaughterer, mortician's assistant, etc. He carries a knife for defence, which is indicative of paranoid thinking. He would have some type of physical abnormality, speech, scarring, illness or injury. It would not be prominent, but it would be psychologically crippling for him. He would be below average height and or weight. He would be unmarried, if previously married, for a short time to someone older. He'd be socially inept. Most sexual relationships would have been with prostitutes. Possibly infected with venereal disease, further increasing his hatred and disgust for women. He would be quiet, a loner, shy, slightly withdrawn and obedient. Neat and orderly in appearance, and he would drink and relax in local pubs. He would find it easier to engage after a drink, and would drink prior to committing the murders. He would be local to the Whitechapel area. The first murder would be near his home or workplace. He's likely to have been interviewed during the investigation, possibly on several occasions, but overlooked due to not fitting the stereotype of being odd or ghoulish in appearance. So let's compare the 1888 report to the 1988 report. So I have come up with a little tick chart. It is on slide 28, if you are listening on Rippercast. So first of all, motive, Douglas says lust murders, Bond says homicidal or erotic mania, I have given that a tick. Douglas says a male, 28 to 36, but he also accepts this may be incorrect. Bond says a male, middle-aged, but does not mention race, so I'll put a cross by that one. Douglas said he'd be ordinary, looking, not wearing everyday dress. Um, Bond said he would be neatly and respectably dressed. I think he must be in the habit of wearing a cloak or overcoat, so I think that's a good match. Douglas, profession, would work alone and be able to experience destructive fantasies, keep regular hours for work. Bond, the exact opposite, most likely a man of a regular occupation, does not possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or any person accustomed to cut up dead animals. Uh, Douglas said he's below average height or weight. Um, I've taken a bit of a leap here. I'm assuming someone who is below average height and weight wouldn't be particularly physically strong, which Bond thought they would be. So I've put that uh, as not matching up. If anyone disagrees with me, then 
we can discuss it later. Um, Douglas said he'd be unmarried. I've taken a leap on this one again. Bond doesn't mention it, but says possibly living among respectable persons who have some knowledge of his character or habits may have grounds for suspicion he's not quite right in his minds. Such persons would be probably unwilling to communicate suspicions to the police for fear of trouble or notoriety, whereas if there was a prospect of reward, it might overcome their scruples, which to me suggests he was unmarried. Um, because um, I don't think a wife, well, depends on the wife really, would uh, turn in their husband for a reward um, even if he did have suspicions of them. Well, yeah, it, dep- it depends on the wife and how much money's involved, I suppose, yeah. Um, Douglas said he'd be socially inept. Bond said solitary and eccentric in his habits, so I've taken that as a match. Uh, Douglas said possibly infected with venereal disease. Bond said possibly infected, uh, no, sorry, Bond said is caused possible homicidal impulse may develop from a revengeful or brooding condition of the mind, but I do not think either hypothesis is likely. So he doesn't mention venereal disease, but with the high venereal disease rates at the time, maybe he just thought it went without saying. So I put that as not matching, but again, it's a little of uh, a dodgy one. Uh, quiet, loner, sli- shy, slightly withdrawn, obedient. Bond said solitary and eccentric in his habits, so I put that as a match. Douglas, neat and orderly in appearance. And Bond, uh, quiet, inoffensive man, neatly, respectably dressed as a match. There are, of course, other things in the report, but I've just taken the ones where we have a direct-ish comparison. Uh, Douglas claims police in 1888 would not have a sexual motive, which clearly Bond and others did. So, as you can see, it, I think it's actually a pretty good match. Uh, there's some contradictory items, but uh, I think over half of them are a match. One, two, six out of ten, yeah. Yeah, so over half of them. A couple, you could say, uh, teetering a bit. But, um, yeah, I think they, they do agree with each other on most things. So would this have caught Jack the Ripper? Who knows? Without a definite perpetrator, we can't really comment on how accurate or inaccurate either profile was. The simil- I think the similarities between them are certainly interesting, but what does that indicate? Does it mean they're both onto the right track? That's meant to say characteristic of the Ripper rather than scientific evidence would have little practical benefit. Douglas does, in the actual profile, he does say, well, it might be this, or it might be this, but it tends to be this. It's not hard and fast rules. He does go in quite a bit. He accepts he might be wrong. Douglas himself describes the profile characteristics most used in Ripper suspect research. These are superficial characteristics true of a lot of people. They're almost boilerplate for a certain type of offender, and that's from the cases that haunt us. So I think I'd like to know what everyone here thinks. So I think it's, I think it's time for the interval, and then uh, we'll have a, a bit of a Q&A and maybe a discussion after. <laughs> Wow. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, John. And what we're going to do now is we are going to open the floor to questions. So anything you'd like to ask John, you can go right ahead and do that. Okay, first of all, we've got one from Bill. Okay. Um, Right, thank you for an excellent talk, John. It was really one of the best we've had for uh, the last few years. Here, here. Um... (laughs) Just about, just three observations. The first is on Bond and Milet. Bond originally agreed 
with all the others that, that she'd been murdered, but then Anderson browbeat him into, into changing his mind. Um, the, the, the second is on John Douglas and his profile. Mm -hmm. He actually first did the Ripper profile seven years earlier in 1981 for a University of Kansas project. University of it, Kansas? It's in Bruce Paley's book okay, on Jack okay, Ripper. Okay, okay, okay. I'm making note of this. And the, fin and the final point I want to make is that um, his profile uh, on Jack the Ripper fits almost exactly... Uh, a guy whom he and Ressler call a motivational model of a serial killer and whom they call Warren. Um, now, Warren is actually um, an Alabama serial killer named uh, Thomas Warren Wisenhant, uh, who was executed uh, way back, uh, well, in uh, about 2011, after spending about 32 years on death row. And... Um, uh, he, the, the, the profile, basically, uh, of Jack the Ripper fits Wisenhand uh, almost exactly. And it is, but it is fair to point out that Wisenhand's uh, murders were, in terms of the mutilations, were very similar to Jack the Ripper's. Was Wisenhand, was he one of the 36 they studied as part of the... I think so, yeah. Was he the one who was motivated, who his motivation was his auntie having a miscarriage in bed with him or something? I don't think so. Because I was just um, having this discussion with the gentleman from Dublin. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't remember that in Wizard Yeah. Because yeah. uh, there, there, there was one killer in that study who seemed a lot like Jack the Ripper to me, but there was no name for him in the study. So I'm wondering if that well, was him. Well, there was no name in the... In the study, which yeah. was uh, sexual homicide patterns and motion, yeah. uh, motives, um, but uh, the um, the Ressler and Douglas and Burgess give him the the, the pseudonym Warren, which is actually his middle name, and he could be they could be referring to him yeah. because his his murders were triggered by family things. Yeah, could, um, could be the same guy. Yeah, then, yeah. but I don't recall him. Uh, uh, having a, uh, something, doing something with his aunt. No, it wasn't doing. It, it was. Um, it wasn't doing something with his aunt. It was a memory of his aunt or something that triggered his desire. Like I think it was more like his mother. Yeah. Okay. Um, possibly. I might him. be misremembering yeah. this. Yeah. Um, Warren, you said that the suit. Yeah. Was. He was, that was the, the the name they gave him, and his real name was actually Thomas Warren Wisenhant. Thomas Wisenhant. There we are. I'll, I'll, I'll look him up. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Great, thanks for that, Bill. Anybody else got any questions? Anything they want to ask? Anything at all? Well, I've got a question. Oh, yeah, we have a question in the back, and then I've got, I've got a question I want to ask. But yeah, we'll go to the back here. Oh, bear with me. Yeah, at the time of the murders, how much um, did they take from the profiling? Did, well, not, although it wasn't called profiling, did they use that information to, I, to try and. Where am I looking? Sorry. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, just how much of the information that they, they, the first profile, did the police use to try and track him down? We don't know. Um, I think if those, if there was any record of it, it's been lost, unless someone knows of anything they actually did do um, from that profile. But uh, I, yeah, I, the reward possibly because they did start offering a reward shortly after, or the City of London did. But maybe the reward, but um, I don't think there was anything else that we know of. My question is, do the FBI these days catch many 
people, serial killers or whatever, using the profile? Is it useful in their, when they're looking for people? I think it's not a case of... Unlike in the films, the FBI don't go out and actually catch them. It's a case of the police officers in the, in the cities investigating ask the FBI to produce a profile. So the FBI come in, look at the crime, produce a profile of recommendations. From most of the studies um, and comments and feedback, and this is Douglas mentions this in Mind, Mindhunter, he's quite open about this, the police don't find it useful in actually... Oh, um, we need to investigate. We, it must be so-and-so because the profile says this. But it can open up investigative lines so they might think, well, we've looked at these people, but let's look at them again. Or it might confirm someone they've already fought um, is a suspect. Or also in interrogation, it tends to be useful if they know the triggers, why the suspects have committed a crime, then that's when it tends to be useful. But actually going out and actually physically catching them, less so. Okay, we've got one more question here at the back. Thanks, John. Um, do you feel that um, Dr. Bond was uh, ahead of his time in, in uh, describing the, the profiles? And um, do you know why he killed himself? When he killed himself or what, why? 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 Um, he was suffering from... Um, it, was, it was some kind of disease of the bladder, I think it was. Um, and um, it was very painful, and he was suffering from delirium, and he actually aggravated it by going out riding when he first uh, came down with it, um, and they believe it was just in a fit of delirium with the pain he jumped from a window. I'm not sure if the disease was terminal. Um, I'm not 100% sure about that, but Adam says no. Yes, yeah, I think he was ahead of his time, yeah. Um, I don't think anyone had ever actually... Yeah, yeah, no, as far as we're aware, no one had done this type of profile. Uh, profiles that came before it tended to be things like phrenology um, or using um, physical characteristics to identify criminals. Um, I don't think, and most of the literature as well, uh, if, you read, if you read the books by Robert Ressler, John Douglas, David Cantor, Lawrence Allison, any of those, they will always say Bond was the first profiler. Hi, John. Um, so I have, I'm just curious about yeah. uh, what you said towards the end of your talk. So I, thi I think I agree with you. I think that when you look at the descriptions of um, given in the two profiles, they kind of come under the category of potentially useful generalizations. Yes, yeah. Um, but I wondered, I, because I'm curious whether anyone in the room has any other potentially useful generalizations about Jack the Ripper that they wanted to share. Well, that's opened up to the floor, hasn't it? <laughs> okay, anybody got anything to respond? So, so my one is that I think you can, dis you can disagree. I think that uh, Jack the Ripper was more lucky than clever. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Uh, that's in the FBI profile that he was lucky, not clever. Yep. That's not the first time I've heard or read that statement. Lucky rather than clever. Yeah. Sue, a question. Go ahead. Well, not really, just an observation, really. Um, the escalating violence on the victims. Um, do you know if Bond had, ha had an opinion about that and... Uh, and uh, what the implications were? 
I can't think at the top of my head anything Bond actually commented on that other than um, him saying the same hand. I might be wrong. He might have said it in the earlier part of the report, but top of my head, I cannot remember. Sorry. Okay. Um, okay, we've got another couple of questions at the front. Um, first of all, yourself, and then I'll come to you, Bill. Does he actually give any opinion as to why the murders ended? Um, Douglas or Bond? Douglas. Douglas. Um, I think he says that the murderer was um, either apprehended for another crime or possibly committed suicide or possibly died of natural causes. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't think the murderer stopped willingly. Um, from what I recall, the top of my head, he thinks that something must have stopped the, the crime. Say again, sorry? The same as 100 years before, basically. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the secret identity of Jack the Ripper documentary, and I do urge you to uh, yeah. get a hold of it. Um, he, they examined five, four, five suspects. Yes, yeah. And Kosminski drew it, um, Goal and Clarence, and I've actually forgotten the fifth. But... Um, I don't think who it was. I can't think of hmm? my head, but. What? Stevens? Stevens, no, I don't think so. Yes. Yes, yes, Dionston. it was Robert Donston. Yes, it was, That's, yeah. Yeah, Donston. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. Okay, unless there's any more questions, I've got a question. The ultimate question. So you've gone through the Ripper profiles. Does that lead you to feel that there's a suspect that leans towards that profile? To, uh, to, to quote um, uh, Douglas, uh, they, these are superficial characteristics True of a lot of people, they're almost boilerplate for a certain type of offender. So, yeah, it fits Kosminski. Um, it fits Barnett, Paley's book. I think Paley's book was actually the first one to use the profile as um, evidence. Okay. But, Bill, you said it was the earlier one. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Jack the Ripper, the simple truth, yeah. yeah. Because Paley makes a big thing about the uh, Barnett possibly having a speech impediment um, and uh, the, the physical disability part. Um, but, yeah, it's just too vague. Yeah. It's, um, from what we yeah. know of the suspects, it could fit a lot of them, or it could fit none of them. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> okay, uh, unless there's any more questions, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause to John Rees. Thanks a lot, John. <laughs> Another terrific talk, really interesting. Nice one. And that was John Reese at the December 2018 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. We would like to thank John Reese, Steve Ratty, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to their Whitechapel Society journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards, or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.